0: for getting us ready and worshiping Lord this morning. My name is Patrick Vestergaard. I am one of the pastors here, one of the two pastors here. And uh, it's a joy for me to to, uh, be preaching to you this morning. Um, So there is this movie about a man, his name is Andy. And uh, he's thrown into prison uh, with a life sentence because of murder. And uh, there he makes a good friend, his name is Red, uh, who's also serving a life sentence. And right in the beginning of the movie, Andy asks Red for a little rock hammer and a poster. And the good friend that Red is to, to Andy, he somehow in prison gets his hands on this little rock hammer and a poster and gets it to Andy. Then one day, almost two decades later, Andy tells Red about this dream that he has. He hopes to live in a coastal town in Mexico. And remember, Andy has a life sentence, right? There's there's no way this is going to to happen. So he, he is not getting out. So Red is getting a little confused what's going on, especially after he later finds out that Andy has gotten his hands on a six feet long piece of rope. Is he going crazy? Red is certainly thinking so. And so the very next day, after Andy had told Red about his his dream, about his vision, the guards find his prison cell empty. And out of frustration, the warden goes down, picks up a rock and throws it at that poster that Red had given Andy 20 years ago. And to their utter amazement, the rock flies straight through the poster. What has happened? Well, for the past 19 years, Andy, with his little rock hammer in his prison cell, had been dug, digging a hole through his prison cell out of prison. And so Andy escapes Shawshank State Penitentiary and he goes to his, his town down in Mexico. And not long after, Red gets out on parole, gets down to Andy to visit him down at his Mexican uh, coastal village. So, so Andy, he had a vision. He 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 had a dream, right? And this dream, this vision, gave him hope, which changed how he lived in the present. Oh, every day for 19 years, he would just dig, dig, dig. And Andy put Andy put his hope in living a life on the coast of Mexico. In the same way, God here in Peter, First Peter chapter one, verse 13 through 16, that Kate just read. Here, God commands us to put our hope in something else, not in a Mexican town by the beach, but in something else, all right? So, but before we go any further, let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. Uh, we're excited to see what you have for us in your word, specifically right here in this letter from Peter. And God, we, we ask that you would Give us a vision for our Christian lives. What is to come and help help guide us through our everyday lives and the little tasks that we have, that we might have a vision that is so much grander that we could ever imagine, Lord. So by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the glories of Jesus Christ and the grace that will be brought to us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so now before we go into the text, let me just say, we are not in the beginning of a new series. We're not wrapping up a series. We're not in the middle of a series. We're just in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16 today. Um, but because of that, we also need to figure out what is going on, where are we? What is happening right here? We just read four, four verses. Where are we? Well, this is a letter. This is a letter from one of the apostles, the apostle Peter, and he wrote it to the Christians who were dispersed meaning they were spread out. As we look in verse one, they were spread out in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You might ask, where is that? Well, glad you asked. I don't think many of us would be able to point to a map and show exactly where that is, but that is modern day Turkey. So right there in between Europe and Asia. And so why why is he writing a letter to them? He's writing to them because they were confused. They were discouraged by the persecution that they were experiencing because of their faith. And so Peter, he writes to tell them to stand strong. He reminds them of Jesus' example and the riches of their inheritance in him, but also the hope they have in Jesus returning to bring them to be with him for eternity in heaven. Okay. so. About to dive into the text, but before we do that, let me give you the main point of the text. Uh, It's not going to be on the screen, so you're just going to get out your notepin or open your uh, note-taking app on your phone. It is a hope-filled mind. So a hope-filled mind leads to a holy life. Let me say that again. A hope-filled mind leads to a holy life. And in these four verses that we read, there's two commandments for us. The first one is in verse 13. Here we read, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first commandment is to set your hope fully. Now down in verse 15, we get the second command. The commandment is to be holy in all your conduct. And so we're just gonna look at them one after the other. We're going to start in verse thirteen. Let's read that again. We read, therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the main point of this this passage, my first sub point, however you want to however you want to say that, is hope is stirred by putting our mind on the grace to come. Hope is stirred by putting our mind on the grace to come. If you don't get that, come to me after, I'll give it to you again, or ask someone else who is a fast typer or good with handwriting. Um, But Peter writes here that we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a future grace that will be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ, a grace is coming, a grace that is worthy of all of our hope, a grace that is for those who hope in Jesus. Now, what is this grace? You may have heard this picture of salvation, that when we're saved, it's like we are in this great ocean. It's dark, it's stormy, it's rainy, it's windy, and we're drowning. and just as a helicopter is passing by, a helicopter is coming by, it spots you, puts its spotlight on you and lowers down a rescue ladder. And what you do is you reach up and you grab that rescue ladder and you pull yourself up and you're taken out of the water. You are given an an invitation and you reach out and you accept that invitation. Well, the Bible tells us that we're not just drowning. We were stone dead, just like Lazarus in the grave. No air in our lungs, no breath in our nostrils, no beating heart. There's nothing, no pulse. In fact, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so salvation is Jesus saying, come out, come alive. That's what makes us come alive. That's what gives you breath in your lungs. That's what gives you a beating heart. And that's why we say, as we look at verse three, Blessed be the God and our Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So we bless him, we praise him because it's all mercy, it's all grace. So what is the grace that will be brought to us? A grace in the Bible is a is a very broad category. And so broadly defined It means God's favor that comes to us even though we don't deserve it. God's favor that comes to us even though we don't deserve it. So when God the father saves believers through Jesus, his son, it's all by grace. Just as we saw in verse three, it's by mercy that we're born again. But if we have already been saved by grace, Why do we need more grace? What is this grace to come? And so it's true that we have been justified if we have turned from our sin, if we have repented from our sin and put our trust in him. We've been made right with God through Christ. He lived a life without any sin and in complete obedience to what God requires of us. So when we trust in him, his perfect record is granted unto us and our guilty record is taken away. And because he had committed no wrongs, no sins, he could take all our wrongs, all our sins on him, past, present and future. And so we were supposed to die, but he died in our place, in your place. It was only him that could do that. And he did. So those who repent of their sins, those who ask forgiveness of him and turn from their sins and trust in him will be given his perfect track record and washed clean of all sin. And this may be news to you. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm fine. I've, I've done nothing bad. I'm no worse than the person sitting next to me on my left or the person sitting next to me on my right. I actually think if we were to compare everyone in here or, and outside and even the people that are watching on the live stream, I would, I would rank pretty high on the, on the moral goodness ranking. I need no one's perfect record, Mine is, mine's pretty decent. And maybe you are right. Maybe compared to the people in this room, you're doing pretty well, you're no worse. In fact, that's likely. But the thing is, that's not the issue. The issue is that you need to compare yourself with the one down in verse 16. What does it say down there? Here, God says, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. God is holy. God, he is a set apart. He is excellent. He's perfect. He's sinless. He is pure. He's just. And God by his very nature has to punish sin, all sin, Although compared to me, you have a pretty good track record. Before Almighty God, it's a whole different matter. So if you stood before him today, you would recognize the depth of your wickedness. You would melt in despair. Not like, not like butter on the counter in your kitchen on a hot summer day. It's, it's like ice cream in an oven of 10,000 degrees. You would absolutely vaporize. You would, you would, everything would go away. He is holy, you're not. You need Jesus desperately. I cry out to him as the time is short and the consequences are infinite. So again, what is this grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, it's clear from the, 12 verses that preceded what we just read, that the grace that will be brought to us is the consummation of our salvation. It's the fullness of our salvation. And when we tend to think of our salvation primarily in, in, in the tense, past tense and in present tense, I have been saved, I am saved. But here, Peter is talking about the future aspect of our salvation. We see that in verse three, four and five. So look up there with me, verse three, four and five, where he describes our future salvation in three different ways. Let's read verse three. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. Hope is future oriented, right? Hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Now look at verse 4. There it says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance. Peter is talking about an inheritance that we will receive in the future. It's Right now being kept, but one day we will receive it. We will be blessed by this inheritance from God. And look at verse five, we read who, talking about believers, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So here it's very clear. Peter is talking about a salvation that will be revealed In the last time, God will disclose this, the fullness of salvation at the last day. It won't be unveiled to that last day. It's a future event. So all of these have partly begun now, but will be fully realized at the revelation of Jesus Christ, a living hope and inheritance and a salvation that will be revealed at the last time. Now, let your eyes fall down on verse 10. Here we see the link between salvation and grace very clearly. We read concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So Peter here describes salvation as grace. He's using these two words uh, interchangeably. You see that? He's using these words almost like synonyms. And so then when we come down to our passage, down to verse 13, Peter tells us to put our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. The grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ is salvation, the fullness of salvation. But it's really hard for us to fully grasp what that means. What does that entail? But Paul puts a few words to that uh, to, to this idea in the letter to the Corinthians. So open your bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 to 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 to 18. Give me a second to find it. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 Paul writes You hear that? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison awaits us. We already experience salvation now, but it will be consummated in the future. Our salvation will be made will be made complete. It will become perfect, and we will be made like Him. We will be holy. We will be unable to sin. Our deepest desires will be filled. Eternal joy will be ours. We will have unhindered communion with God, the creator of the universe. Can you imagine that? The one that holds all things together and loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, to die in your place. That's how great he is. How great that time will be for us to be with him. And that's a grace that will be brought to us, the fullness of our salvation, we will be brought home to be with Christ. But how do we do that? How do we set a hope fully on this grace that will be brought to us? How do we not put some of our trust in other things? There's so many good things in the world, so many pleasures. How do I avoid not just putting a little bit of trust in, in other things instead of this grace that will be brought to us? Well, Peter talks about two things. We ought to do two things. And those are first, preparing your minds for action. See that there right in the beginning of verse 13, preparing your minds for action, and two, by being sober-minded. So first, let's look at preparing your minds for action. The literal translation of preparing your minds for action is to gird up your loins, or gird up your loin cloth. And, you know, I'm from Denmark. We still wear loincloth there. I know you guys don't do that here yet, um, but maybe we can get some fashion over here and we can, we can all be on the same page now. Um, now, let me explain to you what a loincloth is. It is like this flowing piece of, of rope, right? And so um, to gird it up means to get this almost like tent-looking like rope, get that up under you, and t- take it under your belt, and make it sure that it's fastened, it's secure, and you're ready to hard work, you're ready to, to run. And so, as you do that, you got shorts. And if you want a better illustration of this, go to Jason after the service. He will show you exactly what this looks like. He's, he studied this, and he knows exactly what, it's, what happens when you gird up your loins. Um, but there are several, ex- like, several examples of this throughout scripture. One of them is in Luke and in the gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable about men waiting for their master to return from a wedding feast. And he says that those who are awake and ready for their master to come back, they will be blessed. And so right there in the beginning in chapter 12, verse 35, he describes being ready as stay dressed for action. And so that's exactly the same expression as we find right here in verse 13. Let your loins stay girded. Don't be sluggish, be ready. And so we ask, what's the point? Well, hope will not come. Hope will not become a reality in our lives without disciplined thinking. Preparing our minds doesn't happen automatically. It requires effort, concentration, and intentionality on our part. We have to think energetically. And so how do we prepare our minds for action? How do we become men and women that are ready to take on the day as ambassadors of Jesus Christ in in our homes, in our workplace, at school, around family, friends? Well, it's putting our minds on the word of God and specifically on the hope that we have in Jesus. It's intentional, energetic discipline, filling up our minds on the inheritance that will be ours. The inheritance that we were singing about just before that will be ours in Christ and guarded by God through faith. And so this is how our inner man will be filled with hope. A hope that gives you peace even when the shipments to your company is delayed and you don't know what to do. It's filling your mind with promise, the promise of future glory that enables you to congratulate those who were promoted instead of you. It's as you know this eternal way, uh, glory awaits you, you can be genuinely excited for those around you who are succeeding. And so preparing your mind like this will fill you with hope. In addition to preparing our minds, we have to be sober-minded. Now, what does that mean? I think most of us know that being sober means to not be drunk. Well, is that all it means here? Is that all Peter is saying? Think energetically and don't be drunk. I think he's I think he's saying something more than that. He's continuing to talk about the way we think, the way we should think. And so, you know, there's, there is a way of thinking, a way of living that dulls our mind to the things of Christ. It's a way of living that's so absorbed with the, the attractions and the pleasures that the world has to offer that, that our minds simply become drunk to the reality of Christ. Our minds become anesthetized the world just has a way of lulling us into drowsiness, a drowsiness that causes us to lose sight of Christ. And in particular, as Peter's arguing, to lose sight of the future revelation of Jesus Christ, where grace will be brought to us. So being sober minded means what then? Well, it means thinking clearly. You know, people who are drunk are unable to clearly think, right? They can't even walk straight, they're in a a haze. So we are not to be like that. What makes your mind hazy? What draws your mind and thoughts away from Christ? What makes you drowsy to the things of Jesus? The greatest threat to our soul is whatever keeps you away from God. And not every threat is sin. In fact, for many of us, perhaps for most of us, it's a good thing. But this good becomes our God. It becomes where we find our comfort. It becomes our escape. And so let me ask you this. Are you finding yourself with any spare moment that you have, opening your phone and and scrolling through social media, going to Netflix every night and simply excusing yourself by saying, oh, that's the only way I can recuperate and, and get relaxed and ready for the day tomorrow? Is it video games? It's often the trivialities. It's substituting the lesser for the greater. And that is what makes our minds hazy. That's what makes our minds dull. And that's what makes us aimless without conviction and direction. So what do you fill your life with that dulls your appetite for Christ? Put your mind on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And don't let your mind become anesthetized by the world and become numb to God. A day is coming when Christ will return and we will be without sin. Our salvation will be complete. We'll be with Christ and we'll receive praise and glory and honor. Brother and sister, we don't know how great that day is gonna be, but it's gonna be Above all comparison, everything we could think of, it doesn't compare. And that's what we've seen, what, what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians. And so hope is stirred by putting our mind on the grace that is to come. Now, as we wait for the future revelation of Jesus Christ, how are we to live right now? Well, that's what Peter tells us in the next Three verses. So let's read the next three verses, verses 14 through 16. We read, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So here's my my second point. We see here that holiness comes from our hope. That's, that's my second point. Holiness comes from our hope. And so as we already talked about in the beginning, this is our second command. And the second commandment we, we get is to be holy in all our conduct. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Well, it means to be morally and spiritually excellent. It means to be set apart. And so we are to be holy. We are to separate ourselves from from the evil desires of the world and live in a way that pleases God. And we ought to be holy in all our conduct. This command embraces all of our lives. There's no dominion in our lives that is not God's. So we ought to be holy in all of our conduct. But why? Why should we be holy? I think Peter is giving us three reasons why we should be holy right here in the text. And the first one is, is more implied. He writes, as obedient children, we are His children. Um, so because God is our Father and we are His children, we obey His commandments, we're His, right? He has created us, He has designed us. He knows what is best for us. Holiness is best for us, and that why that's how He has designed us to live. So to live in, uh, opposition to his commandment is disobedience, it's sin. So this is, this is the first reason why we should be holy because we're his children, his obedient children. Second, we ought to be holy because he is holy. Uh, that's clear from verse 15. We, we read here that as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God is holy and therefore we should be holy. Well, you might ask, why? Just because God is holy, why should, why does that mean that I have to be holy? Why should I imitate him? Well, Ephesians chapter five, verse one says, be imitators of God. We're created in God's image. And as images, we are to portray God to the world by being like him, by accurately portraying him to the world. So the second reason why we ought to be holy is because he is holy. And we're to be like him. We are to be imitators of God. And third, we ought to be holy because it's written. Look at verse 16. There, there Peter writes, since it's written. Well, Peter has told us we ought to be holy because God is holy. Now he gives additional weight to that argument by saying, well, it was written in the scriptures already. It's not a novel idea I've come up with. It is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So that's the third reason why we should be holy in all our conduct. It is written. But there is a fourth reason why we should be holy. And, um, you know, it's, it's found in one of the, the books that were not included in the Bible. We find it in the. No, you're with me? You're listening? I just want to make sure that you're with me and we're not taking something from outside of the Bible. Okay, you're alive? Still good. Um, no. But the, the fourth reason, I think that's implied um, and made clear elsewhere in scripture, and that is that we should be holy because one day we will be holy. Go with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. I'll give you a second to find it. When you found it, raise your Bible, raise your smartphone. Let me see if you're there. Good, 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 good. Good job, guys. All right. Um, Verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. When Christ appears, we will be like him. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will be like him. But then continue down in verse three with me, where we read, and everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. So even though we will be like him when he appears, we will be holy, we don't just sit around being passive about our sin right now. We're not gonna be casual about our sin right now because we know oh, one day in the future, we will be holy. No, John says, if you have put your hope in Jesus and the grace that we brought to you, you will purify yourself right now. And if you long, like if you long to be holy, when you long for Jesus to come and be holy, be like him, it will just be completely contradictory to right now, not have the desire to be holy, right? In fact, if you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, you don't have to go there, I'll just read it out. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is expected of all believers. This is not salvation by works, but a Christian cannot be indifferent to sin. If he is, the author of Hebrews says, you will not see the Lord. So the fourth reason that we should be holy is because one day we will be holy like Jesus. We're purifying ourselves in expectation of that day when we will be like him. So summarize here, we should be holy because we're his children, because he is holy, because it's written and one day we will be holy like him so the question remains how do i become holy how do i separate myself from the evil desires of the world and live in a way that glorifies god that pleases him well first peter says in verse 14 that we do so by not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance okay what does that mean what does that mean let's just look at these three words conformity Passions and ignorance. Okay, we're in uh, in verse fourteen. Let's start with ignorance. But before the readers of this letter that Peter sent to them, before they received um, saving knowledge about Jesus Christ, they were ignorant. You see that Your former ignorance. Peter here is talking about their pre-Christian past. In Uh, Ephesians chapter four, verse 18 says, they, talking about unbelievers, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Our lives before Christ was characterized by ignorance. That doesn't mean that before we put our trust in Christ, before people put their trust in Christ, that they're, they're stupid or uneducated or unintellectual, Ignorance is simply a lack of saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is not knowing Jesus. Okay, that's the former ignorance. Now let's look at passions. The second word, how are passions produced? Because they're not produced in a vacuum, right? Desires and passions, they have a source. You see the logic here that that Peter is using? Um, The passions of our former ignorance. What's in our minds, what we put our minds on what we believe produces passions and desires. Our mind is a passion producing factory. You know, our eyes fall on a piece of chocolate cake. We look at it, we stare at it. We can't stop thinking about it. Our heart starts to design this piece of chocolate cake. We want it, we need it, right? Desires are produced. And so before Christ, We put our minds on things that create passions that are contrary to the will of God, desires that don't please him. Our old lives were based not on truth, but on ignorance. And so the ignorance produced passions and deceitful desires in us, and we acted on those. So by acting on those, we were conformed to this former ignorance. And our life, our conduct becomes unholy. And that's the issue, an unholy life. That's that last word, conformity. And so we're conformed to our passions and desires that are produced by what our minds are set on. You see that? Say amen if you see that. Yeah, okay, you're still there. Good, good. Um, So as obedient children, stated negatively, this is what we're not to do, right? Instead, if we are to state it positively, we do what we've already seen up in verse 13. As obedient children that have been saved, we replace our former ignorance with the knowledge of grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can do so, we can do that because we're no longer alienated from God by sin, but we've been born again. We have a new identity in Christ. We've been given new life, but we still need to fight sin. We still need to pursue holiness. And we do so by preparing our minds for action and being sober minded. So fill your minds with the glorious future that awaits you, the eternal weight of glory. This is a sure and living hope. And this will create new passions in you and you will act on those and they will conform your behavior. So you become holy like him you are focusing on your mind on is holy. All right. So we asked, how do I become holy in all my conduct? Well, we do so by not being conformed to the former ignorance, uh, to the passions of our former ignorance. Instead, we are to sharpen our minds and think actively about the grace that will be brought to us. This will create, new passions in us, new desires, and the changes how we live right now will become holy like he is holy. So holiness comes from a sure hope. Holiness comes from the hope that we have. Do you remember Andy? He put his mind on this village, this town on the coast of Mexico, and he worked at it every day. Now we have a much, sure a much greater hope than Andy and his beach town, right? Are you putting it on your mind? If not, you you cannot live holy. That's what we read in Hebrews. In Hebrews, we also read about Moses, the great man of God who led Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land. And we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, that Moses refused, to indulge in sin, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Instead, he sought God's reward. He could have had all the treasures of Egypt, right? But his mind was set on the eternal treasure that would be his in the future. And so his passions were changed, his desires were changed. And as a result, he lived differently. So fill your mind like Moses on the grace to come and you will be filled with hope. You will be joyful. You will become generous generous and patient. You'll become content no matter what, no matter if you are passed for a job promotion, no matter if things are not going as you were hoping, if you are still waiting to get married, if it's, you're not having children, all these things, you will become holy by putting your mind on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So a holy, a hope-filled mind leads to a holy life. Grace will be brought to you. Set your mind on that. Then you will become a godly man, a godly woman, fearful of God, but fearless of nothing else. So that's the freedom. That's the hope that we have. I hope you tasted it this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We come before you to praise you as we have been this, this whole morning for the love that you've shown us, the love that you've given us through your son, by him coming, dying for us, taking our place. And then by repenting and putting our trust in him, we have a living hope. We have an inheritance. We have our salvation. We have a grace that will be brought to us. And it's a glory, a glory that cannot be compared with anything else that awaits us. So Lord, help us. Help us to live holy lives right now by putting our mind on the things of you, the glory, the treasure, the reward that awaits us just like Moses did. Lord, so be with us as we go out and we're ambassadors of you in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, as we're raising our kids, in all these spheres of our lives. Lord, would you help us to be holy like you are holy. Fill us with joy as we go about this task and help us encourage one another, lift each other up in prayer, disciple one another as we meet in city groups throughout this area in our different cities, God. Help us to encourage one another to live out this holy life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.